So this is our Simon Don reading group uh, reconvening after a bit of a hiatus, but we're going to do a short session today because of some technical issues. Uh, um, but we're starting from page 85 of the translation, and we'll read just uh, probably a couple pages from there um, and uh, see how things go. Okay, so I'll start reading. Uh, subsection A, singularities are more pregnant than regularities. In the most common perception, what becomes an image and pops out is not a regularity, a pure and constant geometrical character. On a perfectly flat and straight road, what jumps out at the viewer is the pothole, the irregularity, the beginning of a curve after the monotony of a featureless straightaway. What is pregnant on a smooth and regular face is a scar or birthmark. In a general way, information brings the knowledge of novelty, thus of the unpredictable, the accidental, the singular. One person can be differentiated from another because singularities and symmetries of the organism organize according to a singular formula that characterizes that person by accounting for certain accidental aspects. In ordinary existence and various situations, what is pregnant is the source of novelty that traps a continuous action. Scandal means trap. It is the unexpected that imposes itself and becomes figural against the ground of, of regularities. It is true, however, that in some cases regularities are eminently remarkable and become pregnant, but such cases are precisely those when the appearance of a regularity on a background of chaos or random confusion is a singularity indicating a change of domain. It triggers a state of alarm and a surge of vigilance, which are real signals of a change in regime or an imminent encounter. Perfect circles, squares, and triangles are rare in wild nature. If in the middle of a moor or uninhabited land, one suddenly comes upon a perfectly drawn circle on the ground, this form is pregnant and leaps to one's attention. It is viewed as something new, rare, and unpredictable within the landscape. It indicates humans have passed through this place and that we have come across the foundation of a prehistoric dwelling or more recent traces of human activity, such as the foundations of a watchtower. Geometrical shapes are usually artificial. They become pregnant when they are encountered in the wild. It is not forms themselves that are pregnant, it is their incongruous presence as a signal, possible source of information, the occurrence of originality. Even when they are produced naturally, such as, mushroom, such as a mushroom circle, they are interpreted through legendary beliefs and become fairy circles or dancing grounds for witches. Because of the erosion, the fairy chimneys erected on friable ground topped by large flagstones are surprising because of the finesse of their vertical thin lines amidst a chaotic landscape of ravines. In a milieu of random configurations, a geometrical form is pregnant because it, it is necessarily potentialized as a virtual signal. Behind it arise prohibitions, dangers, the foreclosure of laws and human institutions. The simplest of all geometrical shapes, the straight line, is already the sign of a frontier, the ditch that must not be crossed under pen penalty of fratricide, as in the classical and brutal legend of the foundation of Rome. Right, so this bit, um, so we're, we're discussing um, the sort of bigger picture here, in the part that we're discussing, discussing is the um, what is it that makes uh, an image um, have this quality of pregnancy that uh, the Gestalt psychologists discussed, and their answer was that regular figures um, um, have this no have this quality because they represent uh, a sort of lowest state of energy. Um, so we talked about the example of the sphere. Um, uh, and uh, the sphere is the um, lowest surface area for a given volume. Uh, and so like a, a bubble of soap, for example, has a spherical shape uh, precisely because it minimizes the surface tension. Um, uh, and so they, the Gestalt psychologists um, sort of analogize that um, perceptual uh, figures had the same sort of minimization role that um, physical shapes have. And Simon Don here is arguing against that, uh, and, and we've seen like throughout this part of the book, he's been arguing against that notion. Um, and he pointed out 
earlier that um, a lot of uh, shapes that we that have this quality of pregnancy of, of sort of standing out against the background and of you know drawing our attention are are not in fact geometrical shapes like a, just a circle in itself is a pretty boring shape it doesn't have a lot of um, power of drawing our attention uh, things like a face or the shape of an animal are much more uh, pregnant in that sense of drawing our attention and and these shapes are much more complicated than like a circle or a square. Um, but then he's pointing out here in this subsection that in particular situations, particular contexts, um, geometrical shapes can in fact be pregnant, but not they're not pregnant insofar as they're geometrical shapes, but insofar as they're signs of human uh, interference in the environment or human uh, presence in the environment. So you're walking, you're trapped on a desert island, you think you're alone on the island, and then suddenly you see a perfect circle in the in the middle of the forest, the clearing in the shape of a perfect circle. You uh, you're going to suddenly think, okay, maybe I'm not alone on the island. Maybe someone uh, you know cleared this circle uh, deliberately. Um, so yeah, circles and straight lines and squares and triangles, uh, any sort of simple geometrical figures, they're generally pretty rare outside of human uh, productions. Uh, and then he points out that even in the cases where they do arise through natural processes like the circles of uh, mushrooms, for example, that even in this case, it uh, it sort of gives rise to these uh, legendary um, uh, explanations that, you know, this circle is is really the, you know, uh, the product of fairies or witches or whatever um, that, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, so it, it would still be the result of an intentional production, even if it's not a human one. Um, so, yeah, there's um, sort of limited circumstances in which these simple geometrical figures can have the quality of pregnancy, but uh, they have this quality in virtue of being signs of human presence. Uh, that's, that's sort of the point of this uh, subsection. I can read the next subsection. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's just read the one sort of, Paragraph subsection uh, subsection B. Thanks. Uh, no problem. B. Geometrical shapes may become pregnant through their mutual relationships. A rounded arch in a monument built in a completely homogeneous style is not particularly pregnant. This reduced pregnancy is not due to the intrinsic characteristics of an arch that is a perfect semicircle, since if we make a geometrical drawing of this type of arch, it is not particularly pregnant. However, it may become so if it mediates other shapes, which, compared to the rounded arch, deviate on both sides of this average proportion. This is the case for the Cathedral of Orléans, Saint-Croix, seen from the cloister, that is, from the south. The full semicircular arch is topped by a flattened arch and flanked by two lancet windows. When the whole vista is taken at a glance in this construction, which is like a dialogue between three shapes, the rounded arch plays an acutely mediating role. It is like the active center through which the extreme aspects of the flattened and pointed shapes double up and oppose each other. It would likely be possible to find similar examples in the acoustic arts in which pregnant forms are not necessarily the most singular ones, but are those playing the role of mediator within the whole between extreme terms of pitch and timbre. In this case, the pregnant character is connected to average qualities, not because they are the result of a degradation tending towards homogeneity, but because they are like a unique measure. It makes extreme terms compatible with each other. They represent the successful singularity of this compatibility. 
Yeah, so this is another example of good uh, geometrical forms being good forms, but not not for the reason that they are good forms for Gestalt theorists. Um, here, the geometrical shape is a good form because it mediates between other extreme forms, which I guess otherwise wouldn't be brought into communication. Yeah, I think we can probably connect this to his the bit in uh, Individuation, Volume 1, in, or, um, well, it comes up a few times, but uh, for one instance in the introduction where he talks about um, mediating between different orders of magnitude, how the individual uh, sort of mediates between orders of magnitude, like his example is the, the plant that uh, mediates between uh, the subatomic level and the cosmic level it's uh you know by virtue of uh performing photosynthesis um so here we have this sort of mediation property of the so this arch uh, I, I can't find uh, a picture of this set of arches that he's talking about in particular but this sort of um geometrical arch this like semicircle shape uh is not particularly interesting in itself um there's not like you know, it doesn't sort of capture your attention just in its own right. Um, but the function that it plays in the whole building is to um, sort of mediate between these two uh, more extreme forms of arches. And then um, by performing this function, it sort of captures your attention in that way. So again, you have this sort of simple geometrical shape um, that does, in fact, have the, the role of the or the quality of capturing your attention um but it has this quality not because of its simple geometrical shape but because of the function it plays in the whole uh the whole uh structure of the building so um yeah again just arguing against the gestalt psychologist that uh that this is not uh, uh that the, the notion of pregnancy is much more complicated than uh just sort of minimizing a physical quantity uh and and it takes a lot more um uh, sort of fine-grained analysis of a particular setting to understand why a particular figure has this quality and, and why another one doesn't. This is maybe a, a bit tangential, but, you know, it's really stands out to me now how, I mean, I, I know that Simon Don wants to distinguish his distinguished transduction from dialectics, but this idea of the term that mediates between the extreme terms uh, sounds pretty dialectical. Yeah, we keep coming across these moments where he uh there's like these sort of dialectical resonances in his work that um yeah he he you know says explicitly in a few places that he's not doing dialectics and he gives criticisms of what he takes to be dialectics but then yeah there's these moments that seem very dialectical um so yeah it, it would be interesting to try to um yeah trace some of these uh dialectical resonances in his work and and See exactly, you know, where where dialectics comes up, and um, yeah, why exactly he thinks that what he's doing is not dialectics, and so on. Hmm, actually, I think I may have found what he's talking about. Let me just post this picture in the chat here, if uh, Discord will let me. Um, it's trying. Uh, it's going slowly. Let's uh, maybe we can move on and see if it eventually posts or not, and we can come back to it if if necessary. Um, okay, so let's. Uh, read um yeah i can read the next bit i'll read about a page or so um, and then we'll stop from there okay yeah upload failed yeah thanks try again later yes helpful <laughs> okay 
Subsection C, the intraperceptual image of the style common to texture and configuration. Such a mediation is a rare and tense encounter that cannot take place in common occurrences. The relation between matter and form can be a violent and arbitrary relation where the form carves out and masters matter in a way that is as artificially normative and unyielding as geometry in nature. Like bushes a gardener prunes to obey the fantasies, poor in form, of the estate owner. The natural shape of the tree is replaced by the monstrosity of vegetal cubes or balls. Musset describes the shorn ewes of Versailles in onion rows. Today we can see this in the garden of the Villandry castle. In fact, there are elementary shapes in matter like the grain of wood. Each type of wood has its own particular grain, and the fibers of an oak have a different pattern than those of a chestnut tree or a maple. A violent geometrical shape like that produced by a lathe, imposing a revolving figure on the wood, does not respect, support, or prolong the implicit and mute forms of raw matter transformed into a workable matter. The more primitive the tool, the better we can follow the real lines of matter, such as the case with the two-handed curved draw shade used by barrel makers, which is guided by the wood fibre, in contrast to the scratching stock, an instrument of torture for implicit forms. The latter planar traces trim lines as thin and, mo- and numerous as the woodworker wishes with no definite relation to the material structure. For a long time, art was of a synthetic type, adding more objects to objects, like a painting placed on a wall when a house is built. Yet there has arisen an analytical art that does not produce supplementary and secondary objects masking the base or primitive objects. This art consists in addressing matter from the outside in such a way that its texture and aspect are directly integrated in the configuration without paint or plaster. A wall built with well-fitted and well-cut blocks of granite or porphyry needs no plaster or paint. Each material already possesses the microstructures and original texture that cutting, polishing, or sandblasting can reveal without adding or hiding anything. Textures may also be produced in an artificial manner, voluntarily or involuntarily. Hence, a newly forged metal plate folds differently according to the direction of the fold in relation to the direction of deformation given by the rolling mill. More conspicuously, grooved sheet metal meant to resist deformation, such as those in cars of high-speed trains or in modern apartment buildings, in Paris, cannot be mounted arbitrarily in relation to the configuration of the hole in which they play a part. We would not accept a car in which the grooves would be vertical rather than horizontal. That is, the direction of the cars in the direction of the car's length, the train's length, which fits the horizontality of the tracks, the overhead lines, railway architecture, and more generally, the movement of the train, which amounts to the perceptual essence of the configuration. In the same way, it would run against, against perceptual harmony to affix grooved metal sheets horizontally on an apartment building when it, as that of Rue Croulbard, is a trim and high tower. We may note also that such analytical aesthetics correspond to an implicit perception of the working of things. Vertical grooves on a train would trigger a multitude of small turbulence countering the aerodynamics of surfaces. A horizontal arrangement on building would not favor the optimal flow of water. Finally, in all these cases, grooves parallel to the greatest dimension of an object correspond to optimal resistance to torsion and buckling when surfaces themselves, now multifunctional, are not just siding or facing but play a role in the rigidity of the whole. Construction technique of bodiless vehicles according to the beam principle as used in some buses. In this last case, the meaning of intraperceptual rationality requires the direction of grooves to be parallel to the greatest dimension of each sheet of metal when they are rectangular. You may call this style common to the whole configuration as well as the component, the image. The image is not given by the components alone which merely generate the subject's need for it, nor is it imposed by the lines of the whole which are only able to create, through a totalitarian effect, false windows. The image is the actual encounter of the postulate of the components and the postulate of the whole within a perceptual axiomatic of compatibility. Yeah, so Angus has made an interesting remark in the chat here that um, in the first bit of this passage that, that we just read, um, there's this association of the owner of a, a property with form. So the owner uh, is the one who um, you know, has this idea, I want my trees to look like 
triangles or onions or whatever. Um, uh, and then the gardener has to go and like actually chop the tree and you know make it have this absurd shape. Um, and this is again uh, like sort of points back to the association between form and owner in volume one of individuation, um, where um, oh, the poster, the picture finally posted. Um, if you want to take a look, took like yeah another five minutes. Um, um, but um, yeah, so the the um, the owner in uh, in volume one, uh, Simon Don points to the the way that the owner can order a bunch of bricks to be made. So he buys a bunch of clay. He tells his slaves, uh, you know, make me a thousand bricks, uh, and he you know just gives sort of the dimensions of the bricks that he wants, and he doesn't actually have to um, concern himself with the process of um, imposing the form on the matter, and that's something that the slaves have to deal with. So that the slaves are the ones who actually um, impose the form on the matter by you know filling the mold with with clay and pressing it and all that stuff. Um, Whereas the master just takes an abstract form and, and a bunch of matter and says, you know, combine combine these things together for me. Um, and so we have the same association here um, in a, a somewhat different context. So uh, in the case of woodworking or um, gardening or whatever, um, you you can the owner can sort of have a, an idea, a fantasy, as uh, Simon Don puts it here. Um, or maybe a better translation would be a whim, a fantasy, a whim. So the the owner has a whim that you know he wants to have cubicle bushes in uh, in his farm in his uh, garden or whatever, um, and the gardener has to uh, sort of carry out this whim uh, uh, by actually trimming the tree into a cubicle form. Uh, and this is obviously a, a sort of doing violence to the real form of the tree, the underlying form of the tree. And likewise with woodworking, uh, there are certain tools that. Um, sort of operate at the level of the grain of the of the wood. So you you split a piece of wood uh, following the grain, and so you're sort of uh, revealing the uh, existing underlying shapes in the wood, as opposed to other tools where you just sort of abstractly hack away pieces of wood that have no um, particular relation to the underlying grain. So you can impose a I don't know a, a cylindrical form on a, a piece of wood. Um, uh, you know, even if there's no sort of underlying cylindrical form in the grain. Uh, and so there's, these are sort of two different ways of working with wood. And Simon Don, um, not so much here, but in other, well, to some extent in this passage, but in other similar passages, he um, makes an obvious uh, uh, sort of value judgment that it's preferable to um, work with wood and other materials in such a way that you are revealing the form that already exists as opposed to imposing a, a form that uh you know you've decided is the one you want uh so this woodworking that works with the grain of the wood is um sort of more uh i don't know what word i was going to say more respectful i guess of the the reality of the wood so you're you're not sort of violently imposing your own form on the wood you're just allowing the wood to reveal its own form um and uh and so simon don't think this is like a um, uh, sort of more conceptually adequate form of woodworking, and he talks about here this analytical art. So uh, it will be forms of art where you're not just sort of adding decoration or color or whatever to the the material that you're working on. You're sort of subtracting stuff to reveal the existing form, um, 
Uh, and so this, that's sort of two different approaches to art. Um, and he, um, I mean, I'm sure he's not sort of denigrating synthetic art and, you know, the whole history of painting, for example, but uh, um, he thinks that this analytical art is, is a sort of interesting conceptual development that um, is maybe a better way of grasping the essence of a piece of wood or a piece of marble or whatever. Yeah, the, this idea about uh, implicit forms, which he also discussed in volume one, this also seems, seems dialectical to me in the sense that, you know, you can sort of, you can try to explain away the difficulty of the coexistence of matter and form by aggrandizing one of the terms at the expense of the other. Um, but I think Simon Don's position is that the sort of the, the truth of the coexistence of matter and form is in the relation that mediates between them. And in order to um, recognize that, you have to recognize that, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really the way that the lathe interacts with the wood, but, um, you know, individuation requires, uh, I guess, an acknowledgement of the reality of, uh, of the full reality of both the form and the matter, um, as opposed to it being just one as kind of the master element. And the other one is either, you know, diminished or nullified. Yeah, and we see this, um, like in the woodworking example, um, we uh, we see this by by the way that you um, like even the form, even the 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 matter, like the wood. The wood itself is not just sort of an abstract substance, right? It it has its own structure. It has its own form at the level of uh, individual cells of the tree that the wood comes from, uh, and those. Form, those uh, cells, that structure, uh, are what constitutes the grain of the wood, um, and uh, it's it's that sort of fine grain structure that you're revealing when you operate with certain types of tools and certain type of woodworking that reveals that form um, that sort of works with the form of the wood, um, uh, and so and so I think from Simon Dahl's perspective, I think if you if you're d- developing an artifact, uh, you know, a sculpture or um, any sort of piece of furniture, whatever you're producing out of wood, if you do it in such a way that you are working with the grain of the wood and sort of uh, revealing the form that already exists, you're creating something individuated in a way that you're not when you um, just sort of uh, impose a form on the wood without respecting the existing grain. So like um, sort of mass-produced furniture that um, like t- just takes a piece of wood and then just sort of carves it into a cylinder or whatever. Um, uh, doesn't like um, doesn't sort of deal with the existing grain of the wood and is less of an individual in that sense than uh, a piece of furniture that you sort of carve out of the wood following the grain and uh, preserving that fine structure. Um, so I think, uh, and I, I think this makes sense uh, again in the perceptual side of things. Um, that uh, yeah, these these pregnant shapes or these shapes that have this value of um, attracting our attention, they are not the ones that are like just a, a sort of cylindrical chair leg, for example, um, doesn't have that value of like attracting our attention, but uh, a chair that is maybe. Um, sort of carved out of a piece of wood in following the grain that has, you know, the irregularities of the grain of the wood, um, maybe would attract our attention in a way that the other one doesn't. 
Um, and it's precisely because it has this higher degree of individuality of individuation than the other sort of um, uh, violently imposed cylindrical form. Um, so yeah, it makes sense that uh, we we would um, see this kind of more individuated entity as having as sort of drawing our attention more than the uh, sort of uh, abstract connection between a cylindrical form and a, a you know an abstract wood matter. And maybe in this context, it's also worth mentioning that the the Greek term hule, which is generally translated matter, is just, it, it's what uh, Aristotle uses this term to mean matter. Um, the original meaning uh, etymologically is wood. Um, so like a forest or like a piece of wood that you're working on to make furniture or whatever. Um, so this like wood is sort of like the archetypal form of matter for ancient Greek philosophy. It's like something you can, um, you know, give form to that, uh, that you can uh, produce, um, you know, furniture, um, I don't know, other tools or whatever um, out of wood. So you can, you can sort of give it form. Um, but of course this, um, you know, as Simon Dong points out in, in volume one of individuation, this sort of abstracts away from the whole, uh, the fact that there's this existing microstructure, this existing form in the wood that, uh, you know, permits certain types of form, but makes others less um, possible. Uh, and, you know, there, there has to be this sort of adaptation and um, interaction between the, the overall form of the tool or the furniture or whatever that you're making and the microstructure of the, uh, of the, um, wood that you're making it out of. Okay, so let's go on to read um, another page or so, if uh, I'd like to read. Uh, I can read. Are we at uh, Textures May also? Um, no, we read. I read uh, that one in the last bit. Uh, we're at the Baroque, at least. Okay. Uh, okay. The Baroque, at least in its most automized, autom automatized and vulgarized developments, might be defined by the independence of microstructures in relation to configurations, leaving the intraperceptual image afloat and indeterminate. Any detail might be added to the whole configuration, and this addition of fruits, flowers, or rocks has no limit in load or complexity. Contemporary Baroque has emerged with the proliferating automatisms or op art, with microstructural, geometrical, and contrasting motifs developed for themselves and serving to dress objects already endowed with a shape and a meaning. For instance, rolls of quote-unquote opticalized adhesive tape can be glued on cars, furniture, and various objects. The human body itself can be quote-unquote opticalized, that is, overloaded in a Baroque mode with jewelry or painted or glued patterns chessboard cameos and earrings reproducing in black and white the railway signal of complete stop, a square made of four red and white squares, and paintings and tattoos of various kinds showing clothing to be exchangeable in its perceptual functions by adding microstructures superimposed on the human form in a relatively arbitrary way, acting like masks. Of course, this Automatic proliferation of microstructures should not be confused with research in which perceptual microstructures are integrated to the configuration in such a way as to underline its articulations or to exalt their perceptivity through networked highlighting, white shoes or hems in vivid colors. Indeed, it is not impossible that the fashion of opticalization draws its inspiration from signaling techniques, runways, roads, targets, test patterns, or flags in car races. 
yet it repurposed these high perceptivity patterns for rhetorical usage detached from functionality and arbitrary in relation to the configuration in a way that is irritating and vain in the literal meaning of these two terms. Uh, Cesar Gianello has conducted in Buenos Aires logical and mathematical research on textures by using a point, a rectangle, or a line that can be developed according to the formula of a predefined progression in a multidimensional network, creating impressions of incurving, inflating, or hollowing of surfaces. Such formulas are of interest for architecture, particularly, uh, particularly for arranging vast surfaces or volumes by organizing in defined progressions the networks of windows, chimneys, or floor plans and levels. Le Corbusier was very sensitive to the relation of microstructures to configuration. This architect did not conceal his materials nor use plaster. The concrete shows up as concrete and tubes and cables. And tubes and cables, rather than being hidden in corners or sunk under wall coverings, form lines or bifurcations, gather and progress along uh, prolonged vanishing lines in hallways, geometrically suspended to upturned T-brackets. As in living beings, every line of the whole configuration is multifunctional. A hallway is a place of passage, a collective locus that collects and distributes not only human beings in different rooms, but energy, air, water, and information. What is multifunctional remains open and unsaturated. On the T-brackets of the hallways of the Dominican convent of uh, Larbrel, other canalizations may be run if yet unknown forms of energy uh, should one day be distributed. Thanks to its modular concept, we might also prolong the convent without rupture to augmented size, unlike the chapel. Finally, we should note that this analytical art is the most welcoming, the most able to integrate new realities, precisely because its unity is that of the image, which is not material and which bridges textures and the configuration. There are probably few convents in the world whose style could support the sitting of a large propane tank, so near buildings, 15 meters from the chapel. This is possible with uh, Le Corbusier's style. Finally, the non-dissimulation of materials allows for a conversation in the image of textures and configurations. In the convent of Labrel, the cells were coated with hard concrete finish blown laterally on the walls to form waves and hollows. In these long cells, light accentuates the relief in the coating to produce the impression we are in a cave, a long cave of sheer rock, as though there was a profound and substantial link unifying nature and technicity. Yeah, so I don't know, these just, these are elaborations of the uh, points made in earlier in this section and the previous couple of sections with an interesting comment on the Baroque as uh, a kind of hylomorphism of uh, microstructures which don't respect the, the form of the object they are meant to decorate and op art which I'm not really familiar with um, similarly hylomorphic in the bad sense for Simon Don because it doesn't respect the human form. Um, so the implicit form of what the microstructures are supposed to be complementing. And he seems to particularly dislike this mode of fashion. Yeah. This is, yeah. Like you said, this is just a, a sort of um, um, extension of what he's talked about in the previous parts of the, the section. Um, yeah. So he um, he's contrasting the, 
what he had earlier talked about as this analytical art that sort of reveals the existing forms, the microstructure of the material. Um, so like you, you have a sort of bare rock wall or uh, you don't cover your, your stone wall with um, plaster or like painting or whatever. You just sort of reveal the, the stone structure of the wall. Um, that's the one um, sort of better form of art for him. And then there, the Baroque means that the way he's using this term here, Baroque art is an art form that just sort of attaches decorations to something uh, sort of externally. So if you think of like, like the type, the types of things he's talking about here is like these, um, uh, like, uh, I guess, 18th century, 17th, 18th century uh, buildings where you have like little flowers and um, uh, little decorations everywhere, um, sort of, you know, in the woodwork or um, uh, just added to the side of the building or, or wherever. Um, so every part of the building has these little decorations added to the, to it. Um, and um, yeah, for, for Simon Do, this is like um, sort of artificial art in the sense that it doesn't grasp the, uh, the essence of the material that it's made of. It's just sort of adding decoration uh, externally to it. Um, and so he contrasts this with this convent at Arpel, um, the uh, this convent that Le Corbusier um, put together or designed, uh, where um, that uh, sort of avoids the use of decoration. So it, it reveals not just like rock and other natural forms, but like concrete um, and the uh, um, the water pipes and the phone lines and all this stuff, everything is, is sort of out in the open. Um, there's no sort of hiding of the structure uh, in the way that most buildings, like you you run the water pipes, uh, you know, behind walls that, and you don't see the pipes. And whereas in this building, you actually do see the pipes. Um, and uh, Simon Don uh, has had talked about this building in other texts that we've read. I, I forget the exact location, but uh, he obviously admires the uh uh the style of this building uh because precisely because it reveals the form uh of the of the materials that are that are used it reveals its sort of underlying structure as opposed to sort of hiding it behind decorations and walls and uh the way that most buildings do um and then this last bit is i think especially interesting because he um he talks about how this technique of um sort of blowing the concrete onto the walls um, sort of resembles in or like uh, produces the impression of being in a cave. Um, so there's that sort of like this sort of uh, very artificial technical um, method of producing walls in, you know, this is like, you know, obviously not super high tech today, but probably in the 1950s when this building was um, uh, constructed, it was probably a new and advanced uh, technique. Um, so this sort of very artificial technique um, sort of captures the or, or reconnects with a, a sort of natural um, cave type of environment. It, uh, it captures the sort of rippling effect of the surface that, uh, that you would find in a cave. And so he, he sort of points to this as a, a kind of link between nature and technicity, that there's some sort of fundamental underlying um, connection between the two. Um, yeah, and so this is something that, that we can talk about in uh, in connection with um, part three of on the mode of existence of technical objects, where he he talks about you know how um, you know what uh, where 
technical life comes from as a mode of existence of human beings. Uh, um, so yeah, there's um, a lot of, I would you know, highly recommend anyone um, listening to, to check out that text because it's very interesting, um, but I won't go into it too much here. Um, one thing that was actually in, in the last, uh, the last section that you read, this, the point that he makes about the, um, at the end of that paragraph about the perceptual axiomatic of compatibility that's discovered by, uh, by the mediation, um, the idea of, this is something I was thinking about recently, but the idea of, uh, an axiomatic that's discovered sort of in the, in the process of, um, of, uh, like he, in volume one, uh, he often talks about signification as the discovery of an axiomatic. Um, but I wonder if this is, a, I guess, opposed to, uh, um, approach to philosophy that like posits definitions or axioms at the outset and then sort of, uh, imposes these definitions or axioms on the subject that it intends to explain. Whereas Simon Don thinks that, you know, for the same reason that you want to use a tool that respects the implicit form of the wood in order to kind of adequately individuate the piece of furniture or whatever you're making. Um, you know, and when you're building a philosophical system, you don't want to start out with axiomatics that may or may not, uh, I guess, respect the way that the concepts come together in the system as a whole. And so, um, this idea of discovering the axiomatic instead of, uh, starting from it or starting from a first principle or initial definition, um, you know, is itself, uh, kind of synthesis or individuation. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think, I mean, his use of the term axiomatic is sometimes hard to pin down exactly what he's talking about when he, when he talks about axiomatics or axioms. Um, but I think it, it does relate to some developments in uh, sort of foundational research in mathematics and philosophy of mathematics, because uh, I think we've talked about this in, in earlier sessions, but like uh, a sort of traditional, like um, sort of Euclidean conception of axioms is the, that they're um, like self-evident um, principles. So like in Euclid, you have axioms like the whole is greater than the part. So like if you can prove that A is a part of B, and you can prove that B is equal to C, then, you, then you've proved that A is less than or equal to C. Um, uh, so these, and, and then, so this uh, axiom that the whole is greater than the part is meant to be something that you, just by virtue of understanding its meaning, you, um, you immediately see that it's true. Uh, and um, so this notion of, of an axiomatic of, of self-evidence was sort of uh, the dominant one for a long time in, in mathematics. Um, or simplifying to some extent, but um, what happens in um, the 19th century is that, uh, especially with the development of set theory, uh, some of these principles that seem to be self-evidently true uh, turn out to lead to contradictions. Um, so, like, the, the development of set theory through uh, Cantor especially um, leads to, like, for example, the Russell paradox or Russell um, contradiction uh, um, which you can look up. I'm not going to go into uh, exactly what it means here because it's not super relevant. But um, um, anyway, so you, you have these contradictions that arise in sort of foundations of mathematics. 
as a result of starting from principles that seem to be self-evidently true, um, like the, the sort of basic principle of set theory, of, of like naive set theory, as it's called now, is that you, for any property, you can collect all the elements, uh, all the entities that have that property into a set. Um, and, and that seems obvious, um, like you just sort of put the, all the elements together. Um, but that uh, principle seems to actually lead to contradictions. Um, and uh, then what happened in later developments was that um, mathematicians had to be much more careful about how they produced axiom systems. Uh, you can't just say this principle is immediately self-evident, so I'm going to take it as an axiom. What you have to do instead is actually carefully test um, you know, what happens if I add this principle as an axiom? Does it lead to a contradiction with uh, other principles that I've already accepted as axioms? Um, and so axiom systems are actually something that you have to discover. You have to do a lot of work to find, okay, this is actually um, a good set of axioms that defines a theory that um, uh, you know, produces the, the types of results that we want. And so I think that's maybe, I mean, someone doesn't sort of directly talk about the whole sort of theory of axiomatics in uh, uh, the first half of the 20th century in, in Foundations of Mathematics. But I think maybe that's like what he's thinking of here is that um, axioms or an axiomatic system is no longer something that you just sort of immediately recognize as true. It's something that you have to you know, do work to actually get to. It's, it's like the axiom system is the result of work and not the starting point of the work. Um, so I think that sort of development in history of mathematics, it's, if it's not exactly what Simondon was thinking of, it's at least um, relevant to his usage of the term axiomatics. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, one thing that I would like to think about more is this, the relationship between like the discovery of a, of a common axiomatic for disparate terms and the difference between that and, uh, you know, the discovery of a common concept that uh, comprises in like a taxonomic way the um, specific difference that I guess gives rise to the discovery of that concept because I think that Simon Don would not want to want to think of his um, you know his uh, axiomatic system as uh, you know composed of these genus species relationships. Yeah, we've seen in a number of places that he criticizes this sort of genus species. Uh, taxonomic conception of what a concept is or what a what a uh, a way of grasping an entity is so like the sort of traditional uh like natural history method like Linnaeus or someone like that is you know you start from you have like a bunch of individual animals and you say okay th this group of animals are going to form a species um because because they resemble each other in this particular way and then you take um a few different species and you assemble them into a genus and then you, you know, assemble the genera into, uh, I forget what the next one is, order or family or whatever. Um, but anyway, so you just sort of um, gather a bunch of entities and you um, uh, abstract from certain properties that they, uh, that, that distinguish one entity from another um, and you only keep hold of the, uh, the properties that they have in common. Um, and so like, one of the criticisms that Simon Do has of this um, approach is that it's you the the highest uh, genus or the highest um, concept in this taxonomy turns out to be like uh, completely empty, right? Because you're losing 
uh, content, the higher you go in the hierarchy. Like you start from, uh, say, uh, the species dog, and then you um, go to a higher level and you, you look at carnivores, and then you go to the level of mammals, et cetera, et cetera. You go up higher and higher. You get to like living beings, and then you get to like entities in general, like and and then entities. Um, the the concept of an entity is like completely empty. You have no content to this concept, right? Um, so if like the whole goal of science is like to produce these hierarchies, then the end point of your hierarchy is seems to be pretty worthless if it's just an empty concept that applies to everything. Um, so that's sort of one reason to think that this is not really what exactly we're doing when we do science. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, so Simon don't contrast this with um, his notion of, of, yeah, the invention of a, a compatibility or a discovery of a compatibility um, between disparate terms. And, and so this, uh, as we talked about before, this, this notion uh, draws from the uh, theory of binocular vision uh, so you have two retinal images, two images uh, projected onto your eye that are slightly different because each eye is looking at the object from a different angle. Um, and what you, the image that you see is not of two, like, copies of the object, you know, from slightly different angles. Instead, you see one object, but in depth. Uh, and um, so, yeah, this sort of depth perception, this uh, invention or discovery of a dimension of depth um, for Simon Dole is something productive. You're adding something or discovering something that wasn't there before, um, as opposed to the conceptual hierarchy where you are actually subtracting from the, uh, the content of the concept. So you start from the concept of dog and you go up to mammals and living beings by uh, eliminating some of the properties that they don't have in common. Um, so I think it's this sort of productive nature of the um, uh, visual perception example that um, that sort of separates it from the taxonomic concept hierarchy. Um, but I think at the same time, he does want to see uh, sort of creative philosophical work as productive in the same way. So when you, um, as a philosopher, when you come up with a concept like um, the concept of atoms, that like everything is made up of atoms in the void, um, so this is a, a, a creative work of philosophical thinking. It's not just um, sort of looking at things and, and sort of abstracting from their properties and, and putting them all under a, a concept of atoms in the void. You're actually producing a new concept and um, sort of showing how it uh, can produce um, the, the it, how it allows us to grasp the entities that we see in the world, the composite entities as um, as composed of atoms in the void. Uh, so this production of the concept of atoms in the void or any other philosophical concept is itself productive. So, so it's not just in visual perception and similar situations that we can um, be uh, intellectually productive in, in that sense, um, but in concept creation as well. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I'll just read the last couple paragraphs of this chapter, and then we can discuss that and, and stop there for today, I think. Uh, okay. In analytical art, the link between nature and technicity appears when the configuration is related to the geographical reality upon which the built work was constructed. A waterway will be crossed or a hill to be vanquished. Uh, sorry, a waterway to be crossed or a hill to be vanquished may be enough to create this linkage, which is the intraperceptual image between the dimensions of the whole integrated to the world and the microstructures of human building. 
This is the case for the segment of the highway coming from Paris to Clermont near Montferrand, with high road lights and thick-grained roadway coating against the background of mountains and cityscape, and also for the segment of the new road traversing Châtellerault through its newly built neighborhood. This stability of the image as an operation common to texture and configuration is not limited to a perceptual effect closed on itself. It triggers the concrete expression of forces, tendencies, and significations that devolve from the perceptual action and bestow its scope to a monument. This is is the meaning of the memorial to the resistance erected on Mount Mouchet. This massive and simple stone block before a vast unobstructed horizon is like an extension of the rock of the mountain. It is surrounded with no boundaries and no other embellishments. In a way, it is the last of the tumulus mounds scattered by the roadway leading to this harsh and wild plateau. Driving down towards Sog, we find the same quartz-rich granite, the main local rock, cut in large chunks and serving as support for posts or boundary stones. Born from the ground and bound to this place like the memory it perpetuates, the monument draws its meaning from being the structure of singularity that gathers and focuses the force of things. To summarize, the pregnancy of forms expresses the inherence of the intraperceptual image. This image is neither given nor results from a stable state of equilibrium. It is the act of a subject who finds meaning at all orders of magnitude of perceived reality in the tensed and thought compatibility of the most elementary materials and the vast configurations inserting this portion of reality into the world. The equilibrium expressed in the intraperceptual image is that of the living in relation to its milieu, rather than that of the lowest level of energy in a system. It is not the resting state of a single equilibrium, but the linkage of two systems, the subject and the world. The interperceptual image is the nodal point of, inter- of insertion of this linkage into the world. It stands in a symmetrical relation with the existence of the subject as organism in relation to the limit separating the subject and the world. Right. Uh, this example about the uh, the road is kind of hard to understand exactly because um, obviously I've never been to Paris or or driven down this road or anything, so it's hard for me to uh, you know grasp exactly what his, he's getting at here. Um, but again, we have to remember that this, this is a set of lecture notes, so um, the the audience would likely have been more familiar with this setting than uh, we are as readers. You know, fifty, sixty years later. Um, uh, but the, yeah, so this, um, example of the, um, monument to the resistance, I think is maybe a bit easier to grasp because he, you know, describes it in more detail. Um, and Angus has posted a picture, which I'm assuming is of that monument is what it looks like. Um, um, so yeah, so yeah, it's, um, this, uh, monument is, uh, um, so a monument to the French resistance against the. Uh, occupation by Nazi Germany uh, in World War II, um, and it's sort of cut out of this uh, stone that belongs to the uh, the setting in which it's found. Um, so in the same way that the resistance is sort of rooted in um, the, the uh, local environment, this stone comes from that environment, uh, and it sort of depicts that, um, that same uh, locality or um, localness of the, of the resistance. Uh, and um, so you find this same kind of stone in other places in this um, region, and uh, it's again, it's it's um, produced in such a way. I mean, it's hard to tell exactly from this picture, but um, it's not like covered in decoration. It, it's like the sort of the opposite of the Baroque style that he criticized earlier. So it's not um, embellished in any way. So it it just sort of reveals the the quality of the stone, um, and uh, it. And so you, it, it sort of combines the microstructure of the you know, texture of this stone material um, 
it mediates between this microstructure and then the macrostructure, which is the landscape as a whole, because it's um, set up on a, a sort of promontory. So um, this artwork, this monument, um, serves to mediate between these two um, levels or scales of magnitude. And so this exactly is what he points to in this last little summary paragraph as being like the the function of uh, the pregnancy of an image is is this mediatory role or this um, role of uh, producing a compatibility between something some elements of a situation that were not compatible before. Um, so again, we have that like the example of the arches in the church where you have these two extreme forms of arch that are mediated by the intermediate forms and then that intermediate form takes on the value of this pregnancy or this attention-grabbing uh, property uh, just by virtue of that mediating character. Uh, so um, again, it's this sort of mediating role that makes an entity um, into an individual for Simondon, uh, or that is a, a key component of what it is to be an individual. And uh, and so this is uh, also the case in the in in the case of perceptual images. So an image is individuated and stands out from the background and captures our attention insofar as it um, compatibilizes a sort of pre-existing tension and, and as opposed to minimizing tension, which is the Gestalt psychology um, explanation of this, uh, of this property. Yeah, I, the only comment I had on this section was this, the way he says that the uh, monument gathers and focuses the force of things also sounds pretty similar to the way he talks about like um you know the center of the woods uh as the uh uh site with like the most reality or like the highest mountain in the primitive magical unity in um part three of mode of existence yes exactly um that's that's a great point um yeah so in in that book uh again i'll, I'll sort of recommend that listeners uh read it for themselves because it's uh, an amazing text um, but in part three of that book, he's going through um, his sort of genetic anthropology, his account of the different modes of human existence and how each one arises out of the previous ones. Uh, and the starting point is this, um, uh, what he calls the magical mode of existence. And it's one in which there's no um, distinction between subject and object yet, um, which, and that's something that arises later. Um, but it's not like a sort of... Uh, sort of bare unity of everything. It's not like everything is all sort of uh, in a like soup all mixed together. Um, there's this sort of, uh, he calls it a network structure, reticulated structure. Um, the world is composed of uh, these sort of key points um, that have uh, a sort of power of um, uh, incarnating the, the force of a, a, a region or, some, or uh, a moment of, of time. So he talks about, yeah, the, the center of the forest is sort of like um, the the key point of the forest or the highest peak is the key point of a mountain range. And uh, and in the temporal um, domain, you have like certain moments like uh, a new year, for example, is often in many societies is a sort of point where um, uh, the whole year is sort of incarnated into one moment. And, and like we even have this today, we have sort of, you know, New Year's resolutions where you sort of set your um, ideas for what you're going to achieve in the next year you are, are all sort of focused into one moment uh, in the new year, um, no matter how effective we are in actually carrying out those resolutions. Um, but uh, 
in in other societies there's like you know very elaborate new year celebrations and often has to do with like the change of the seasons whether it's like a harvest festival or a spring festival or something like that um and uh yeah so there's these sort of key points in space and key moments in time that sort of concentrate the force of everything that surrounds them um and uh uh so yeah this monument to the resistance has the same role it sort of concentrates all the force of the landscape surrounding it and produces this sort of key point uh on this promontory that uh where the the um landscape as a whole and then the texture of the stone interact with each other mm. oh interesting i have never seen those statues mm. yeah so angus had just posted a picture of uh statues at storm king in new york i don't know exactly where those are or where they come from but they're quite uh striking yeah it's a big um obviously outdoor sculpture garden in upstate New York. Some of these statues, the way they interact with the, the horizon and you know, the mountains in the distance is, is pretty striking. Yeah, that's cool. I did not know about that. Um, have to check that out someday. Um, yeah, um, I think this is a good place to stop since we're at a, a chapter break. Um, and actually, we're more or less at our normal ending time anyway. So um, let's stop here. Uh, and then hopefully we won't have any technical issues next week. And uh, uh, hopefully everyone can make it out and join us um, to continue with part three of the book.